Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. Come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today's the 23rd day of June 2022. And this is Membrane Biochemistry Lecture 6. We've been on this neuroscience pathway for a bit, and we're not going to leave it yet. In fact, I taught an entire semester course just on the neurochemistry of membrane activity. And that was uh, four days a week. <clears throat> so four hours a week for uh, however many weeks a semester is a lot of lectures. I'm not doing that now. I'm really digging into the literature, but I'm giving you that as a, I guess, reason why we're going to be spending some time on neuroscience because you need to really understand the complexity of this <clears throat> before we start getting into membranes and other pathological states. We've talked a little bit about neuropathology, but uh, and we talked a little bit about oncology. When we get into the full-blown description of the pathobiochemistry of membranes as macromolecular structures associated with lipids and yes, proteins, nucleic acids, and carbohydrates. Uh, then I hope that we can get into the the deeper aspects of the event ontologies and ontogenies of membrane lipids in living systems. So today I'll remind you that in addition to the plasticity that we normally describe to a synapse, that you get these epitranscriptomic dependent changes in neuronal membrane excitation. And I told you before that contributed directly to what's known as an adaptive IME, intrinsic membrane excitability. Now, the evidence for any of these neuronal correlations is the observation that when you inhibit DNA methyltransferase, remember that's an epigenetic writer. And you can do this by pharmacological antagonism, or you can use antisense oligonucleotides, uh, or you can actually do a knockout if you're using a mouse model for DNMT activity. What you get is an increased neuronal IME. And that's evidenced by an increased evoked exponential frequency. So what does this all have to do then with methylation? Well, DNMT1 and 3A knockdown actually phenocopies that increased evoked exponential frequency, which is observed after exposure to the pharmacological inhibition of those two enzymes. And what it is uh, correlated to is the regulation of neuronal adaptation which is what we've been talking about here, neuronal plasticity. And it suggests that there are key distinctions that exist between the induction uh, of an intrinsic plasticity and what's known as synaptic scaling, which is basically a feedback mechanism. It's a hierarchical feedback mechanism. And that scaling seems to be associated with dynamic DNA, cytosine within CPG island, methylation. So an increased intrinsic membrane excitability, which is caused by DNMT inhibition, dependent on the synaptic strength of that transmission through both an AMP A 
and an NMDA receptor. Now we'll get back to that in a minute. I want to talk a little bit about Hebbian modification of synapses, which occurs, of course, through LTP, also has long-term potentiation, which we've already defined, and I will better it in a moment here. Now, all of that is important for what's known as associative membrane formation. Okay, so that's a distinct sort of mechanism that is a neural correlate. So this LTB, LTP is likely not sufficient to actually encode a memory because of that feedback scaling I just mentioned. So when you, when you are constantly activating extra potentials, what happens is you start to get a, a drawdown of those extra potentials downstream. And what that means is that you don't have enough overall firing to wire that memory into that neural network. Okay. So again, we talked a lot about that heavy hypothesis, fire together, wire together, right? And that's supposed to be an aspect of how you gain memory or how you learn a specific equation, uh, aspects of membrane topology, uh, how to uh, play Mozart's third violin concerto, right? And so the rules to that fire together, wire together are associated with an unconstrained and essentially nonspecific superimposed and induced synaptic strengthening, which actually is predicted because of that scaling mechanism to degrade memory storage. So the idea is how do you solve this neurocorrelation issue if you want to make a neurocorrelation to memory capture? Well, there has to be some kind of synaptic normalization, which means that there has to be an electrochemical and metabolomic constraint on a specific synaptic weight of the action potential mediated response from dealing with a specific experience, such as a learning experience. Now, cellular plasticity mechanisms with, right, with, with the correct properties to normalize what we call a synaptic weight, those have been identified and they've been studied in animal models. And it definitely seems that they play a critical role in associative memory. But what are the specific biochemical phenomena? Right? That has been elusive for a very long time. So what has to be then brought in is this whole concept of synaptic scaling. So you know that plasticity is, uh, requires that intrinsic membrane excitability but it also requires synaptic scaling and, of course, in association with long-term potentiation. Right? Remember, we talked about that very beginning of these lectures. So how do you use this scaling to cause a homeostatic plasticity normalization? Right? That's the issue here. Homeostatic synaptic scaling, to define it, 
is a semi-autonomous cell-associated negative feedback mechanism, which works in two directions because it scales the excitatory postsynaptic strength while maintaining neuronal activity. And it does so within that IME platform. So what people have determined is that to stabilize neuronal plasticity, there has to be a mechanism for regulating neuronal activity at the level of synaptic strength. Now, LTP, long-term potentiation, is of course a rapidly induced mechanism. But the synaptic scaling, that feedback, because there's a lot of biochemistry to it, so it acts slower than just electrogenic potentials, that can last hours after a response. So that means it can't really stabilize the kind of Hebbian plasticity, which occurs on very short timescales, right? The firing itself. So you have to have a temporal distinction between whatever unopposed Hebbian plasticity occurs and at the same time maintain an associative memory formation. And that means there has to be the scaling which occurs well beyond the stimulus. And that scaling has to be associated with a conditioning of the internalized action potential firing that is associated with the stimuli, which is generating what we believe to be some kind of neuronal network that links to a specific memory. So again, you need to normalize, actually you need to renormalize synaptic weight via synaptic scaling, which is the feedback mechanism, slowing down that action potential um, periodicity, right? So memory specificity probably emerges as some kind of meted out slow induction of synaptic scaling at the same time you're getting action potential firing. So that's the idea, okay? That's the, that's the concept that has to be tested. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk more about biochemistry. That was just almost straight neuroscience. I'm going to tell you that dietary omega-3 fatty acids, such as eicosapentaenoic and docosaxenoic acids, are enriched in the CNS membrane, particularly in the synapse. So although the products of um, alpha linoleic acid biosynthesis, okay? Um, DHA and EPA, eicosapentaenoic, docosahexaenoic acid, are indeed produced because of elongation desaturation mechanisms and then loaded onto phosphoglycerol lipids and sphingolipids. That whole activity is greatly enhanced in the central nervous system as opposed to other tissues in the body, okay? So we find dietary omega-3 fatty acids in the synapse, in the dendrites, and in photoreceptors, for example. 
So that's a very selective enrichment. Yet they are absolutely necessary for synaptic function and plasticity. So what's going on here? Okay. Well, we know that omega-3 fatty acid deficiency gives you poor synaptic function, particularly hippocampal. So dietary omega-3 fatty acids, such as DHA, when they are in the synaptosomal phospholipid fraction, don't seem to impact dopaminergic or serotonergic turnover. So they're not involved in DA and 5-hydroxytryptamine mediated metabolomic neurotransmission. So what are they doing? Well, when you get what you do see with a decrease in omega-3 fatty acid, particularly DHA, is you get a reduced concentration of glutamate receptor subunits, particularly the ones called GLUA1, 2, and then the NR2B. You also get an alteration in the synaptic vesicle proteins, synaptophysin and synaptogammon 1. Now, this again is in the hippocampal synaptosomes, and you find this in omega-3 fatty acid deficient mice. Okay, so this is the mouse uh, research. Now, in contrast to that, an increased concentration of neuronal IP3 receptor, that's the anastol-145-trisphosphate receptor, is also found in that omega-3 fatty acid deficient group. So you get an increase in IP3 signaling. Beyond that, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency reduces LTP in the stratum orions of the hippocampal CA1 area in that particular subnucleus, but not in the stratum radiatum. Now, that means that omega-3 fatty acids seem to have very unique effects in distinct subsets of glutamatergic synapses, which then goes on because of the neurocorrelation to suggest there's a molecular component to altering plasma membrane properties that are linked to that whole process that's occurring in the hippocampus. Okay. So, Another thing I can mention to you is active microglial engulfment of synapses occurs often. And that microglial engulfment of the synapse actually regulates brain development. And then after that, experiential learning and memory. That's right. Microglia, which are also known as resident macrophages in the CNS. In fact, it's because of synaptic pruning that the microglia are involved. So when you impair synaptic pruning, you generate neurodevelopmental disorder. So it looks like there's a specific mechanism of low maternal omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid uptake in the hippocampal development, again, in the murine model. And what a paper I read in Nature Communications came out a couple of years ago suggests is the following. 
this maternal dietary omega-3 puffer deficiency actually increases the microglial-mediated phagocytosis of synaptic elements in the developing hippocampus. But it does it in an interesting way. It does it by activating the 12,5-lipoxygenase, therefore the 12 heady signaling pathway. That's hydroxyacosatetraenoic acid signaling, which is the product of lipoxygenase activity on arachidonic acid. After phospholipase A2-mediated removal of arachidonic, which is, of course, omega-6 fatty acid. Now, that signaling, because you have the deficiency now in the omega-3, has a direct association in the murine model with neuronal morphology corruption, which seems to affect the cognitive performance of the offspring of the maternal deficiency in the omega-3 fatty acid, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency. That suggests this is how the neurodevelopmental defects are associated with maternal omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid dietary deficiency. Okay? I think back out the memory discussion we're talking about in the Murine model, the other paper we just mentioned, there was a, a, a paper that was published in the European Journal um, of, I think, Pharmacology. I'll give you the citation in the show notes. Oh, no, European Journal of Neuroscience, sorry. And this paper we just talked about is a Nature Communications paper came out in 2020. So now you're starting to get some idea about how fatty acid composition within the membrane is linked up to these neuroscience terms like LTP. And again, scaling of the memory coefficient after excitation of the action potentials. Okay. Now these hydroxyacosatetraenoic acids, okay, when you've got Linoleic acid. Now, linoleic acid is omega-6 fatty acid. That's the precursor to arachidonate. Okay? The precursor to glycosapentaenoic <clears throat> and docosahexaenoic, of course, is alpha-linolenic acid. That's the omega-3 fatty acid. That's the essential fatty acid. Of course, that alpha-linolenic acid has three double bonds, and the closest one is at the 15 position, so that's an omega-3 fatty acid, right? Because there's 18 carbons and alpha linolenic acid. Linoleic acid is also 18 carbons, only has two double bonds. In the 9 and 12 position, that's why the 12th position, carbon position, six carbons away from the methyl terminus, it's an 18-carbon fatty acid, it's an omega-6. All right, now, the oxygenated metabolites of these fatty acids, of these essential fatty acids, what we're talking about here. And they're typically called oxylipins, the generalized term. And they're derived from arachidonic acid and other related fatty acids, depending on uh, their position of the terminal double bond, either the omega-3 or omega-6. So you have pathways which are interrelated because they're competing with the saturases, elongases of the essential fatty acids, linoleic and alpha-linolenic, but also subsequent to that, the cyclooxygenases and the lipoxygenases. So 
you have linear hydroxyacosatetraenes and you have monooxygenated metabolites. And some of those are interconvertible between those octadecanoids, which are the essential fatty acids. So you have octadecanoid like linoleic acid, and then you have an octadecanoid like alpha linolenic acid. And from them, you get dissimilar oxylipins. So for example, EPA and DHA will become oxygenated and they're going to give you different derivatives. So let me go through this systematically with you. Starting with linoleic acid, if it reacts with the enzyme known as 5-lipoxygenase, you make a 9-hydroxyoctadecadienoic acid. If you react linoleic acid with 15-lipoxygenase, different isoform of the enzyme, you make a 13-hydroxyoctadecadienoic acid, also known as HODE. Now, the elongation and desaturation of linoleic acid to arachidonic acid, so omega-6. Arachidonic acid can be converted by the COX enzymes to prostaglandins or by the P450 enzymes to so-called 20-hydroxyicosatetraenoic acids, or the 20 HEDs. However, arachidonic acid can also react with 5-lipoxygenase, 12 lipoxygenase or 15 lipoxygenase, three different isoforms. The five lipoxygenase are going to make the five HEDs, which are also known as leukotrienes, the 12 HEDs, and the 15 S HEDs. Okay. Now, alpha linolenic acid will be elongated and desaturated to icosapentanoic acid. Icosapentanoic acid can be loaded onto phospholipids like phosphatidylcholine. And after phospholipase A2 activity, icosapentanoic acid could be released. Same way racodonic acid was released from a two position of a glycerol lipid. And icosapentanoic acid can then be converted via COX to its series of prostaglandins, but also to its series of hydroxyicosapentaenoic acids. So you have five hepes, which are five series leukotrienes. You have 12 hepes from 12 lipoxygenase activity. You have 15 hepes. Same thing can occur with delcosahexanoic acid. Now I'll just give you one derivative. You have hydroxydocosa tetraenoic fatty acids and you have docosa docosinoic oxygenated fatty acids which include the 17 s hdha series okay that comes from 15 lipoxygenase okay now some of these hydroperoxides can also uh, be produced non-enzymatically and those are called isoprostanes. And we don't know when they're produced non-enzymatically whether or not these are, these have specific biological roles. They probably do. All right. 
So again, arachidonic acid can be used to make um, hydro and hydroxy icosatetraenoic acids of various alterations of double bond displacement and oxygenation. I also mentioned you make these leukotrienes. So there's an LTA for hydrolase, which will make the gamma, uh, which will make the first derivative, uh, leukotriene A4. Then an enzyme called gamma glutamyl transpeptidase will make the dipeptide LTD4. And then one more will make LTE4. So you're starting off with the full leukotriene LTA4, and then after that transpeptidase of the entire glutathione molecule, you start removing amino acids one at a time. You do this through LTA4 hydrolases, LTC4 synthases, and then those various dipeptidases, okay? So let's go back now to long-term potentiation. I've told you all of that. I gave you a little primer on oxygenated fatty acids and the two different essential fatty acids in the central nervous system for synaptic strength with a greater enrichment of the polyunsaturated fatty acids, the long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids with the omega-3 series. And you're starting off there with EPA and DHA. Remember that. And all those derivatives I just told you are produced in situ in the central nervous system and are components of LTP in humans. So, Functional imaging has shown that the human hippocampus is activated during certain forms of memory formation. And indeed, any damage to the hippocampus, hippocampus results in an inability to generate new memory. That's been shown in humans. Now, in rodents, in the mouse model, hippocampal neurons fire action potentials only when an animal is in is placed in certain locations. So this is more of a behavioral phenomenon, not the kind of sophisticated reasoning phenomenon you see in humans. Right? So this is really an important factor here. But in the Murray model, we do get these place cells. And the place cells seem to encode spatial, three-dimensional spatial memories. And we know this because when you get hippocampal damage, it will prevent rats from developing a proficiency in spatial learning. Okay. Now again, this is a much more simplified characterization than what happens with the same induction of memory in the human central nervous system, in the human brain. Because here you're dealing with the the components of the faculty of understanding, which means the production of concepts, the components of the faculty of the imagination, which means the production of essential ideas. And then finally, from the prefrontal cortex in particular, interacting with the limbic system and the hippocampus in, in more general terms, we get the mentation process, which involves a, an ability to take concepts and ideas and internalize those into full thought processes, some of which can become memories 
because of all the exponential activity, because of long-term potentiation, et cetera, because of the scaling. And others are more immediate response in terms of willing and acting upon phenomena that require attention. Now, there are many other brain areas involved here in this process of memory formation and in memory storage and in retrieval. Okay. But in general, they all involve some kind of synaptic plasticity from the hippocampus. So we mentioned this before, we have cell bodies of the pyramidal neurons and they lie in a single densely packed layer. It's divided into other subregions. So you have CA1 and CA3, where CA refers to the cornu aman, which means the aman's horn or the ram's horn, because that's kind of what the hippocampus uh, resembles. Okay, that's where you get these. All this nomenclature comes from this. So the dendrites of those pyramidal cells in the CA1 region form a thick band called the stratum radiatum. And what they receive, of course, is synapse from those Schaefer collaterals. The axons from the pyramidal cells in the CA3 region. Now, great deal of neuroscience has been conducted to look at LTP in conjunction with the synaptic connections between those Schaefer collaterals and the CA1 pyramidal cells. In fact, when you do a stimulation of the Schaefer collaterals, you will generate an excitatory postsynaptic potential in the postsynaptic CA1 cells in the hippocampus. Now, if the Schaefer collaterals are stimulated only two or three times per minute, the size 